This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm so excited to have Lara Adler with us. And she and I were talking before we began recording and I started in motion last year after taking one of her courses that this was going to come to fruition because on so many levels, our listeners need this information. I say this from my perspective. I'm a allopathic, Western medicine, functionally trained nurse practitioner. I think I'm pretty savvy. And there was a lot of information that I myself did not know. And this is going to be one of those episodes that I think is really important to share with your loved ones. Make sure you listen to it a few times, take actionable steps. So let me give you a little bit about Lara's background. Lara Adler is an environmental toxins expert and educator and a certified holistic health coach who teaches health coaches, nutritionists, and other holistic health practitioners how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from the results they are seeking. Largely the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She helps train practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposure so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. Welcome, Lara. It's so good to be connected with you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to come and chat. Absolutely. So I think it's important for the listeners to have an idea of the scope of the issue. And I think people are oftentimes very surprised to learn that even though we're in the United States, and yes, we have these federal agencies that are designed to protect consumers, there's not a whole lot of protection going on. So let's kind of start, you know, where from the beginning, like where the scope or the magnitude of the issue really stems from. I know that there's many reasons, but I think it's important for people to understand just from the perspective of what is designed to help us. And then, you know, we need to go beyond what is currently available to be able to look even more closely at things we're exposed to in our personal care products, our environment and our food. Yeah. I mean, I think the big misconception that people have, and understandably they have this, is that the, you know, federal government has policies in place that are protective and that, you know, products wouldn't be for sale in the marketplace if they weren't safe. Like that's just the general assumption that people have. And certainly there are some checks and balances, like people can't, you know, we have, I don't know if everybody remembers the like famous Tylenol tampering case. I think that was in the early nineties, late eighties or early nineties. And like all the Tylenol came off the shelves and, you know, so there's things like that. So like, I don't want to say that there's no protections because we do have the consumer product safety commission, which, you know, they're the ones that do product recalls. If there's a, you know, your jacket toggle is going to get caught in the door of a school bus. I remember that Mm -hmm. from like the nineties, that was eighties or nineties. That was a thing. And so, or, you know, lead paint in Thomas, Mm -hmm. the tank engine toys. Like we do have some recall, but that's coming from just specifically the consumer product safety commission and they're handling consumer products. They don't handle things like pesticides, herbicides, those kinds of sort of more widely used products and chemicals in the marketplace. So I think the first thing to understand is that you know, in the United States, we have really weak policy that regulates chemicals in commerce. And if you talk to somebody from the chemical industry or manufacturing industry, they'll probably tell you the opposite, that like regulations are too restrictive to do business. But that's just kind of the song that they sing because they're trying to defend their marketplace and their pl- or their place in the marketplace um, and their ability to sell products and make profit. 
And so the reality is that we have industry is very heavily involved with government in the writing of the laws that ultimately protect industry over the consumer. And so, you know, it takes us decades to pass legislation that's supposed to protect us. So we have the Toxic Substances Control Act, which was first passed in 1976, and it took 40 years, four decades, for that policy to get an update, to get a major update, and that happened in 2016. So it took 40 years. And the reason it took so long is because of industry influence and the sort of partisanship that kind of worked its way in. But this is a nonpartisan issue. Why? Because all people are exposed regardless of your political party. And yet it became a very heavily partisan issue. And so, you know, if it's taking us 40 years to pass an update to our primary policy that regulates chemicals in commerce, not even all chemicals in commerce, just the chemicals that that agency oversees or that policy oversees, you know, you can start to see what's happening in the marketplace isn't, we're not guaranteed safe products. We're not guaranteed to not be harmed by the products that we're encountering. And then certainly another layer into this, and this is an aspect that I just find fascinating and infuriating, is that, you know, people look at the United States as being this very litigious society, right? Like, if you don't like it, sue us, Mm -hmm. right? And so corporations bank on that mindset, right? That, oh, well, if something is bad and something is harmful, like we'll find out real fast because people will sue us. But I don't know how many people that you know that have tried to go up against a large multinational billion dollar company like a SC Johnson or Johnson and Johnson or whatever it is and win, right? And so companies know that the little guy isn't going to be victorious. They're not going to have the funds to actually go after them. And they rely on that to kind of keep things copacetic for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's, there's so like, I can probably spend an hour just talking about that kind of dynamic that we're in. But the bottom line is that chemicals are not required to be tested for safety prior to going to market. There are no strict requirements that say that. We have hundreds of thousands of chemicals in circulation globally, the vast majority of those have never been tested for safety and certainly not the kind of safety testing that is reflective of our actual exposures, right? So there's safety testing data that exists for a small percentage, like 2%, if less, of the chemicals in commerce. And even that data is not necessarily representative of the chronic low levels of exposure that people are experiencing every day. I think you described it vastly, you know, this kind of Goldilocks effect that it's, you know, this cumulative exposure, like people will say, well, I'm a guy, I just use bar soap. I use shampoo. I brush my teeth. I use deodorant. I use five products a day, but it's the cumulative impact of all of those chemicals and each one of those products over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for so many of us, we don't think about our skin as being an absorbent organ. We just think, oh, I slather myself. (laughs) We don't even think of it as an organ, like, but technically it is, it's the largest one that we have. And, you know, I think a lot of people will toss out statements like everything you put on your skin is absorbed into your body. And that's certainly not true. Like There's plenty of products that are designed to sit on the surface of the skin. That's how makeup works, right? There are products that are designed to penetrate the skin. And then there's other, you know, ingredients and products that 
aren't intended to go into the skin, but they do just because of the, you know, their molecular size. And so, you know, we don't absorb everything, but we do absorb a lot of chemicals and compounds that we put on our skin. And not all of that is bad, but in the cases where it is bad, like we should pay attention to that and we should explore that. And that's really the work that's happening in the, you know, the field of environmental health that is starting to explore, like, what are the repercussions of, you know, these chemicals showing up in people. And I think an interesting thing for people to understand is like, we can't test chemicals directly on humans. Like we, that's not the way it works. There's ethical standards. Like that's not how science research happens. We do, however, test on animals. And so in this realm where we're in a situation where we can't directly test chemicals and see like, oh, what would happen if like a human being was exposed to this chemical every day for its life for 80 years? What would the impact be? We don't, A, we wouldn't do that ethically. B, we don't have, nobody's committing to an 80 year longitudinal study, right? Like that's not happening. And so we do rodent studies and then we have to draw inferences between animal research and epidemiological data that is looking not for necessarily health effects, but they're looking for levels of chemicals and associations between chemical exposures and and certain illnesses or outcomes, both positive and negative. And so we do see that when we look at that animal research and then look at the epidemiological research, we see a lot of parallels and that gives us the data that we have or the information that we have to say, maybe we need to be approaching things differently Mm -hmm. in terms of our chemical regulation. But then we go back to the first part of the conversation, which is we're butting up against industry that's pushing really, really, really hard against any movement in that area. So I'm curious, was there something that occurred for you or a loved one that got you started on with a desire and an interest in this area? Because obviously you know, a lot of it can be very scientifically dense, you know, as you're diving into this research and diving into especially epidemiological studies, this is not stuff you sit up with, you know, late at night. I mean, you really do have to have all your mental faculties (laughs) aligned to be able to absorb what you're reading, but was there an issue? Did something crop up? Was there a family member who got harmed or just your genuine interest? I know you describe yourself as a science nerd, which I love because I love to understand the why behind the how, but was there one thing? in particular that kind of cropped up that developed your interest in this or you just kind of fell into it? There wasn't. You know, I think a lot of people in the health space come to their area, their little niche, because either they or a family member had an Mm -hmm. issue and I didn't have that. I didn't. I kind of grew up in a teenage 20s culture of like kind of damn the man and like, you know, (laughs) that whole vibe where like it's let's stand up for the little guy, you know, let's right some wrongs kind of ethos. And, you know, when I started learning about this topic, which really happened kind of accidentally, because as you know, I was working as a health coach, and Mm -hmm. I had clients, you know, I didn't really have a very clear niche in my health coaching business. So I was just kind of working with people casually, typically around weight loss, that was kind of an easy area. Most of my clients who sought me out for that, they had results, they did all the things. And then I had like a couple of clients who also did all the things, but they just, their weight didn't really budge and they were frustrated and I was frustrated. And so I started looking at what am I missing? There's gotta be something I'm missing. Cause like they clean up their diet, they're drinking the water, they're sleeping, they're doing yoga, they're, you know, minimizing their stress, their, whatever it was, like they did all the things that worked for everybody else. And that was really where I kind of cracked the door open into this whole area of environmental health. And they're like, wait a minute, there's things that were unknowingly exposed to, they're not things that we're doing, 
right? It's not choices that we're making that I'm going to eat this versus that, or I'm going to exercise or not exercise or whatever. There were just things that were passively being exposed to, and some people certainly more than others. In that case of that uh, sort of deep dive into the literature was linked to metabolic issues that led to insulin resistance, diabetes, weight gain, resistant weight loss. And I was like, wait a second. Like at that point, I'd already been, you know, I'd been researching and reading about nutrition and kind of wellness superficially and just for myself. But at that point for like a decade. And so I was like, wait a minute, like, why is this kind of the first time I'm hearing about this? I'd gone to a health coaching school and for a year long program, it was not mentioned. None of the practitioners that I spoke to knew anything about this. And so that kind of was unfolding. And then at the same time, my sister-in-law was pregnant with my niece. She's now 12. So that's always my yardstick for my measuring stick Mm -hmm. for how long I've been in this space. And I started researching what are the products that, you know, like a baby's crib mattress, like, let's start looking at what are the issues. And I was horrified. Mm. I was horrified at the chemicals that were being used in products for babies. And then the more that I started digging into just products for everybody, it was really this feeling of this is not okay. And it's not okay that people don't know about this and not okay that people aren't actively talking about it because the secrecy around it is what keeps it being perpetuated. It's what allows companies to get away with knowingly putting carcinogenic chemicals in products, putting chemicals that are known or even suspected to be reproductive toxins and toxic to our most vulnerable, which are infants and and babies still in the womb. And so that, like, I just kept thinking, how do these people sleep at night? Like, what is wrong Mm -hmm. with people that they're so willing to put profits over people? Mm -hmm. And so it was that outrage, honestly, that really like was the steam that moved this engine along. And I quickly realized that, you know, like I said, the, all of the health professionals that I spoke to were like, I don't know anything about this. And I feel like it probably should. And so I spent two years you know, really making sure that I understood, like doing all the research, going to all the conferences and lectures and symposiums and, you know, talking to scientists and doing all the things that I knew that was in my skill set at the time to really understand this topic so that I could kind of spread the word to health professionals. And that's been happening since 2012. So, and what's great is that this dialogue has expanded so much in that time. Well, I'm so glad that you had, you know, the circumstances that developed this passion and this interest. And I think there's a lot in what you stated that I want to unpack. You know, there's a degree of cognitive dissonance. And for people that listen to this podcast or other podcasts that I've done or other people's podcasts or read things, sometimes it's very hard to understand that there are individuals in this country, other countries, it's not unique to the United States that are more interested in profitability over safety. And so that's number one. I think number two, sometimes it's really hard to wrap your head around. So we're not suggesting anyone that's listening that you have to change everything you're doing right away. It could just be one thing from, if you take one little nugget from this podcast that you're ready to do one little thing that has a huge impact. And then, you know, number three, I too, you know, I left clinical medicine five years ago and developed this business. And almost instantaneously, I started attracting women about the same age that I was that were really struggling with weight loss resistance. And so 
I always refer to it, the analogy of it's like peeling an onion that, you know, sometimes people it's, they remove inflammatory foods, they sleep better, they manage their stress and boom, the weight comes off. Other people have to do five other things. And then there are people who really still are doing all the right things. And I believe everything they're telling me fervently. And we've checked all the labs and we've done stool studies. I mean, we've done all the tests and it's this type of nuance. It's these exposures to toxins that are oftentimes what most people are not having an honest conversation about. And so that's why I'm so very grateful that you're here today. And what I was thinking might be most helpful for listeners would let's focus on, cause there's so many things like I could yeah, bring Lara back and talk to her for hours yeah. and we will definitely make that happen. But what I thought would be most useful today would be to talk about endocrine disrupting chemicals. And I'd love for you to explain a little bit about what these are. Cause there are probably some people saying, yeah, I've heard of that. I might recognize, but other people are saying, I've never heard of this before. What are those? And even if you are really careful and conscientious, you are exposed to these things on a daily yeah. basis. And so yeah. Let's unpack what they are and identify examples, and then we can talk about what they actually do. Cause you were already starting to allude to some of what they do with the hormone disruption. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's particularly important for women who are, you know, struggling with weight loss resistance in particular, people who are trying to get pregnant, are pregnant, have young children, people that are at my stage of life where I'm done having kiddos who are now teenagers. And, you know, we're just, we're focusing on different things. We've got all these hormonal fluctuations, but let's talk about these group of toxins, because I think this is particularly important for the listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably, I would say one of the biggest and most important areas. And there's so much research on endocrine disruption at this point. Like there's still lots we have to learn but there's a lot that we know. So the endocrine system is our hormonal system. It's not just sex and reproduction. It's everything from digestion and whether you're hungry or full, um, it's your mood, it's your energy, it's development, it's reproduction, it's body temperature. Like your endocrine system regulates like all the things basically. And so interference in that system as kind of logically assume is that it would cause some downstream problems there. And so this uh, class of chemicals that it's known as endocrine disrupting chemicals, there's about a thousand of them that are identified as known or suspected to be endocrine disruptors. My hunch is that number will balloon exponentially as we do more research. As I mentioned, we've only really started to examine a tiny fraction of the chemicals that are in commerce. Um, you know, in the United States, we like to say there's like 84,000 chemicals in commerce. We don't actually know that the accuracy of that number. Um, we used to say that there was about 150,000 chemicals worldwide. A new analysis, I think that was published just this year, discovered that like we're actually closer to 350,000 chemicals worldwide. So there's, there's a lot. And so because we've only looked at a small pocket of them, like I said, we have, there's about a thousand of these endocrine disruptors. And then there's subclasses. So there's like chemicals can be endocrine disruptors and also be obesogens, diabetogens like that. And those obesogens is sort of that sort of origin of what I started looking at. But these endocrine disrupting chemicals can block or mimic our natural hormones in our body or can interfere with their synthesis or their metabolism. They're kind of like like masquerading as our natural hormones and they can turn on or turn off, you know, things in that body that maybe shouldn't have been turned on or shouldn't have been turned off and then cause all these downstream effects. And, you know, what's really challenging is 
you know, a single endocrine disruptor like BPA, which is one of the ones that people tend to be from more, most familiar with, as I like to say, it has the most street cred because people see it, mm-hmm. you know, labels BPA free all the time. And we can talk about that in a minute, but is that, you know, these chemicals are ubiquitous one. So we're all being exposed, but two, a single chemical like BPA has so many different endpoints of potential impact. And we can't say for a given person, ah, you were exposed to BPA, you are going to end up with this symptom or that symptom. We don't know yet what the outcome is going to be. We can see here's the menu of things that we think might is likely result from exposure to BPA or that BPA is linked to or associated with, but we can't say, oh, you were exposed to BPA, therefore you're going to have this outcome. So, you know, that area of research is still kind of in the dark. We don't know that yet. And I think that uncertainty is part of what industry, frankly, relies on, mm-hmm. right? They're like, well, we prove it. And then we're like, no, oh, we can't prove it exactly. But again, we can look at those rodent studies, we can look at epidemiological data and make strong cases for, but I think that that part is challenging. But going back to the sort of general topic of endocrine disruption is that we have these low levels of exposures day in, day out to these chemicals that are bioactive in the body, meaning that they, they're, they're doing things, they're turning things on, they're docking in our estrogen receptors or what have you, they're bumping iodine out of our thyroid, which we need for, you know, optimal health on all levels. And, you know, most people will come and say, oh, but the amount that's, you know, of this exposure that we're getting is so small, it doesn't really matter. And that's the sort of the company line of industries that use endocrine disrupting chemicals. Oh, the amount in our product is so small, it doesn't matter. Well, if that was the only exposure that somebody was getting, right? If they only got that one exposure from that one product one time, sure, not a problem at all, no big deal. But that's not the reality of human exposure. The reality of human exposure, to your point earlier, is that you know some guy might be using five products, some woman might be using 10 products, a teenager might be using 20 products, right? They use more products than anyone. And those are just personal care products, right? We're not looking at laundry detergent and household cleaners and home fragrances and whether or not you're driving with one of those Christmas tree air fresheners in your car, right? So we're not exposed to one single product. We are exposed to hundreds of products all day, every day. So that's sort of one point to keep in mind. The other point is that our body is naturally designed to be responsive to really minute levels of hormones in the human body. That's how the human body works. The hormones that course through our veins are doing so at extraordinarily low levels, like parts per trillion levels, really, really tiny. And the way that I like to say it is that our hormones are communicators, they're messengers, Mm -hmm. and that they communicate in whispers. Yes. Really quiet, really little amount, really, really, really little. And, you know, you've ever either for people that have gone through puberty or have had children that have gone through puberty or gone through menopause, like they don't feel like insignificant. Those are not giant fluctuations. Those are relatively small fluctuations Mm -hmm. in hormones that cause these like major fluctuations in how we experience life during those times. 
And so we know that the body is extraordinarily receptive and responsive to these really tiny levels of hormones because that's how our physiology is evolved. And so when we have similarly low levels of exposure to these chemicals that interfere with hormones, it logically makes sense. And we see this, you know, out in animal studies that the low levels of exposure that we're getting, these parts per billion, parts per trillion levels of some chemical in your drinking water or some chemical in your shampoo day in, day out, those chemicals are bioactive in the human body at those levels. And the body can't tell the difference in a lot of cases between a molecule of say estradiol and a molecule of BPA because they're almost the same. And so this is where this idea that, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals are really concerning at all levels of the human lifespan. They are most damaging. They are most concerning during fetal development. And I would even say backed up before that, when it comes to conception and healthy, the ability to conceive, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of these chemicals interfere with the health of sperm, of sperm counts, of, you know, egg health, of all of these different factors in human fertility. And then this sort of most vulnerable which is the developing fetus. That's like, mm -hmm. it's building a Lego set. And imagine somebody coming in and taking out a bunch of Legos or throwing in some other Lego pieces that are like, you know, faulty. You can't undo that structure once it's built, faulty as it might be because of this endocrine disruption. And so this really is the most vulnerable population. And what I think is fascinating and makes sense given disease rates that are in happening in children right now. You know, childhood obesity is tripled since the 1970s. We're seeing all kinds of, um, whether it's learning disabilities, behavioral problems, all of these different things that are kind of ticking up in children is that there is this concept called, got a couple different names. FEBAD is one of them, this fetal basis for adult disease or fetal origins of adult disease, which states that it is that what's happening in the womb during fetal development that can actually set you up for increased risk of disease in adulthood. So you were talking earlier about, you know, there's some people that just struggle with losing weight. It's entirely possible, and we've seen this in rodent studies, that they were exposed unknowingly by their parents while they were in utero to these obesogenic chemicals that can alter their fat cell production or they alter their bodies in ways that predispose them to gain weight, even given the same caloric intake as somebody who maybe was not exposed. And so that might explain some of those differences, why somebody can like eat whatever they want and never gain a pound. And then you've got somebody who's looks at something wrong and then they just, you know, put on five or 10 pounds. But so that's sort of the gist with endocrine disruption is that these small doses really matter more so even than some of these large doses, which are toxicology field really looks at those high dose exposures. And so if that's, we can certainly talk about that end of the conversation as well. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available 
that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armorous colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think it's really invaluable for people to understand that these exposures can be cumulative and that's important to understand. 
that, you know, we have hormones in our bodies that are designed to play a particular role unless they get dysregulated either due to lifestyle choices, you know, the way we eat, the lack of sleep, too much stress, the things we're exposed to in our environment, food, personal care products. And so there can be a lot of information. And I love that you kind of touched on the epigenetics. So obviously things that we're exposed to through our parents, you know, there during my nutrition training, we talked about Pottinger's cats, meaning, you know, if you're looking at generations or lineages of certain cats and people are going to say, why are you talking about cats? And the point is, is that you could, there were certain phenotypes of cats that the healthy cats, you know, were derived from, you know, cats that ate a particular type of diet, more nutrient dense. And then other cats who ended up having a lot of health problems who ate very differently. And so there's so many variables that impact you know, how we're able to be flexible with our health or our weight. You know, I also think about there's lots of studies, as I know, you know, about just the changes in bacteria in our gut can impact how many calories are, will be broken down and utilized. And so there's on so many levels, I use the term multifactorial, so many reasons why this can happen, but you mentioned and touched on BPA. And I think about like my biggest association with BPA when I had younger kids, it was with bottles because yeah, yeah. yeah, bottles. And it was like BPA free, which I later learned is crap and garbage anyway. It's not any better, but I also think about receipts. Like every day you go to the store and you get a receipt and 99.9% of the time I say, no, thank you. Unless I genuinely need it. And then I have a little plastic bag, which isn't ideal, but then I don't have to touch it. And then if I need to scan it, it's scanned. But what are some of the other more common obesogens that you can think of? Like, I always think about you know, phthalates, which is spelled like no one ever spells that word. Right. I jokingly say it's like, if they could have just spelled it with an F and not a PH, a little bit easy. PHTH, like what other words start PHTH? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So BPA certainly is a big one. It's one of the most common chemicals in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. It's expected that 93% of the population has BPA metabolites in their body at any given time. And, you know, the, and I'll continue down on that list, but I'll pause here and say, and this is true for phthalates as well, is that some of these chemicals that we're exposed to have, they're non-persistent. They don't build up in the body. We might be exposed to them a lot, but they don't build up in the body. So there's other chemicals, you know, like lead, which deposits in our bone. That's a lifetime store of lead in our bones. There's, you know, PCBs, dioxins, there's these fat soluble persistent chemicals that are really, really hard for the body to get rid of. Those are problematic on a whole nother level, but these non-persistent chemicals like BPA, like phthalates, like organophosphate pesticides, that's another one that we can talk about. These are non-persistent chemicals. And so the body knows how to metabolize them pretty well and breaks them down and you pee them out. And so some people are like, oh, well, that's the body doing what it's supposed to do, which is great. It's true. And the short amount of time that these chemicals are in the body, they can still have an effect, a negative effect, right? So they can come in, flip a bunch of switches and then peace out of the body. So they're still, they're problematic on their way in and on their way out. But what that tells us in terms of their short transit time is that when we reduce exposures, right? We can actually have a meaningful impact on the long-term levels of these chemicals in our bodies to, to some degree. And so I like to preface this because, you know, it's a little overwhelming for people when they learn about this stuff. So there is a sort of light at the end of the tunnel 
I like to kind of frame it that way. So yes, BPA is certainly one of these endocrine disrupting chemicals that's also um, classified as an obesogen, not all obesogen, all obesogens are endocrine disrupting chemicals, not all endocrine disrupting chemicals are obesogens that we know of. So BPA is one, phthalates are another. Phthalates are, again, spelled P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. <laughs> slap the person who decided to come up with that. Phthalate, that's their <laughs> name. And so phthalates are another ubiquitous chemical. They're suspected to be in 98% of the, at least the U.S. population. And these are found in both in soft plastics and in fragranced items. So perfume, shampoos, household cleaners, laundry detergents, scented candles, air fresheners, all of those products that are so commonplace. Most people have some or most of these, you know, fragranced items. You know, my next door neighbors, I have to close my windows when they do their laundry because oh no. their smell of their detergent and their dryer sheets is so pungent. I mean, it will wake me up out of sleep. I don't know why they sometimes do their laundry at literally three in the morning, but I have had to wake up and close my windows at like 3 a.m. because I can just smell their dryer sheets coming in. So all of those products utilize, or most of those products will utilize phthalates to make the fragrance formula stick around longer and be persistent because that's, they want that to be persistent. And so, you know, when we see advertisements for laundry products that have these like scent release beads that will extend the amount of time that your laundry will smell like the product by weeks or months, I'm just going, well, you've just jacked up the amount of fragrance and the amount of phthalates to extend that. And so phthalates are ubiquitous within scented products. That's all our personal care and household cleaner products. And then they're also found, like I said, in soft plastics. So if we think in particular, anything that's made of PVC, mm -hmm. so whether that's a PVC backpack, a raincoat, your shower curtain, your kid's Halloween mask, a garden hose, these are all typically made of PVC. And so if we think of PVC as polyvinyl chloride, we think of a PVC pipe. In order to make that pipe soft and flexible, phthalates are added to add that sort of resiliency, that component to that type of plastic. And so those phthalates will migrate out very, very easily into their surrounding environment. So for example, um, shower curtains, people, such a benign, like, why are we talking about shower curtains? But shower curtains are they, that, that plastic smell that you're smelling. Those are phthalates. And we don't want to use those. It's just an unnecessary exposure. And so phthalates are well-established endocrine disruptor and obesogenic chemical. We have, I mentioned organophosphate pesticides. This is the newer class of of pesticides. It used to be organochlorine pesticides. These were highly persistent and were building up. This was the whole DDT thinning of, you know, eggshells for eagles and birds that really Rachel Carson brought to the world's attention in the 1960s with the publication of her book, Silent Spring, which is hailed as the book that like really kicked off the environmental movement. She was a woman way ahead of her time who was like silently battling cancer while fighting this big fight. So she is a hero among humans. I really believe she was just a brilliant woman. Anyway, so she really rang the alarm bells about that. And because of that, you know, we kind of decided as a society to let's find a better replacement for those really persistent toxic 
chemicals. So we did take action there and we swapped them out with organophosphate pesticides. So no organochlorines, yes, organophosphates, they're way less persistent. They're not really less toxic, right? They're differently toxic. And so those are also chemicals that we're being exposed to. Primary exposure source is through food, right? It's through the consumption of conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. Obviously, if people are utilizing lawn and garden pesticides that they're buying at Home Depot, you're getting a major additional source there. If somebody's working occupationally as a landscaper, as an agricultural worker, they're getting an absolutely enormous amplified level of exposure. Those are occupational exposures that are really, really concerning. But these are, again, this non-persistent chemical that we can actually significantly reduce our exposures to as individuals through the purchasing of organically grown foods. And there's been like at least five or six studies at this point that have sort of repeated these same findings, which is often an argument, oh, we can't reproduce the findings except that they have many times at this point, (laughs) that when people switch from a conventional diet to an organic diet, they can drop the circulating levels of pesticides being excreted in the urine by 80 to 90% in three to five days. Unbelievable. So yeah. So, and it's it's like, that's sort of this sort of light at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can have a meaningful measurable effect on the levels of chemicals that we're bringing in by not bringing them in. Now I'll say, because I think this is an important whole other facet to this conversation is that there are millions of people in this country and elsewhere around the world that don't have access. They can't afford organic food. They can't afford the non-toxic skincare. And that's a whole other dynamic of this conversation. So, you know, I'm cognizant as I give these recommendations for people to make lifestyle changes to minimize their exposures, that some of these recommendations are not accessible to all people. And that is really where we need to be more vocal advocates in the same way that like, you know, you had little kids and baby bottles was the big source of BPA. The reason why that was BPA, not the other bisphenols, because BPA is just one in a family. BPA was actually banned from use in baby bottles was because moms were like not having it. Mm-hmm. And they like rolled their, it was called a stroller brigade. And they like rolled their <laughs> babies up onto the lawns of Congress and their state houses. And like what politician is going to say no to a bunch of moms with babies. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, and so they really used their power in the marketplace to demand change. And so in addition to serving our own best interests by minimizing our exposures in the ways that we can. I think we also really need to fight and advocate for stronger policies that will protect those that don't have the access to, you know, buying organic food, for example. I think that was a beautiful explanation. I think it really is important that those of us are a voice for all individuals and not just advocating for, you know, where we live geographically, but acknowledging that there are people who don't have the ability to make all those decisions seamlessly. You know, I trained in inner city Baltimore. And I remember one of the projects that we were always working on with the kids was trying to, you know, instill like, you know, gardens that the kids could be involved in because 
for example, you know, in the inner city, people's access to food is oftentimes the hyper palatable, highly processed stuff in like a corner market. And yeah. when I say market, it's not like the market that we're thinking of. And so really instilling those, that joy and that love for actually getting their hands in the dirt and, you know, allowing something to grow and, and just being cognizant that, you know, I never want to just advocate for just my own children. I want to make sure that we're advocating for all the kids or all the, you know, young adults or all the young women that are, you know, for example, and this is again, kind of a tangential comment, but when you're thinking about as women start menstruating and, you know, they're considering, you know, becoming sexually active and they're considering options for contraception and just acknowledging that not everyone has the ability to go buy organic tampons or a diva cup. Right. It's like, okay, we yeah. need to come up with workable solutions for everybody because, you know, it needs to be as equitable as we can make it, or at least have manufacturers providing more options than just the bleached cotton. That's, right. I mean, anyway, we could talk just about yeah, that. It, yeah. That's a whole other facet that I think is important. And going back to the pesticides, right? So doing our best to minimize our exposures there. I mean, there's so many other areas of exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals. And in an attempt to kind of make at least the parts of this conversation as equitable as possible is the lens that I really am looking more closely through is getting people to start where it's free and where it's easy. Like that's kind of my tag in this or the way in which I want people to approach this is, you know, it's not about, like you said, it's not about going in and like getting rid of everything Mm -hmm. all at once. It's not about like throwing out your furniture and ripping up your flooring and like doing a home remodel. Like that's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about here. We're talking about making small, but meaningful changes Mm -hmm. lifestyle wise that can help to lower. You're never going to eliminate your toxic exposure. That's we've long passed that point. We can't do that but we can minimize it in meaningful ways. And I'll give you an example of in meaningful ways. So in research around fertility, where they're looking at levels of chemicals like BPA and phthalates in uh, women that are undergoing IVF treatments, the women that had the highest levels of exposure to say, for example, phthalates were significantly affected by or had lower fertility rates. And the women that had the lowest levels, not none, just the lowest levels, didn't have those same fertility hurdles that women with a higher level. So our goal is not zero. Our goal is less. That's our goal. And so I thought that that, you know, that specific research kind of shines a light on the reality. We're not looking for zero. We're just looking to get as low as we can, because that's where we can kind of start to see a positive impact. And so we want to start with the things that are free and easy that everybody can do. And so the first of those things for me is always just ditch, just throw out, just donate it, just throw it out. The scented candles, the air fresheners, the reed diffusers, the plugins, the Febreze, you know, home air freshener products. Those are all filled with phthalates. They're also filled with other chemicals, VOCs, things like benzenes, which are carcinogenic. So we, and they're significant indoor air pollutants. And so just don't buy them. This can be challenging because people love their, they're so attached to their home fragrances and their scents. And I get that that can be challenging, but I like encourage people strongly to just start minimizing it and then go without. 
Even if the scented candle isn't being burned, if you can smell it, it's entering your body. The fastest way for a chemical to enter your body outside of injection is via inhalation. It goes right into your bloodstream. So let's focus on those ones that we're inhaling. And on the same token, the next thing that people can do that's free and easy is open your windows, mm-hmm. right? So we build our homes to be really energy efficient, which is great from a energy standpoint, but it's terrible from an indoor air quality standpoint. And that really took place in the 1970s. That started being a build trend in the 1970s because we had the OPEC oil embargo. So we all, everything all of a sudden became about energy efficiency. And then our homes started to be built really, really airtight. And what that means or the impact that that has is, you know, most of the materials that we bring into our homes off gas chemicals, your floors, the paint on your walls, your furniture, especially if it's that like, you know, cheaper particle board, uh, MDF furniture, our kitchen cabinets are often made of this stuff. Our, you know, flooring is vinyl or laminate flooring and all of these materials, not even factoring in the scented candles and the air fresheners are off gassing. And if our homes are really airtight, then we're trapping all those chemicals in. So, and we know this, the EPA has found that indoor air is actually two to five times worse than outdoor air. And it can go up to a hundred times worse, especially if somebody's doing a renovation or they're painting that indoor air quality. Technically, if it was a workplace would violate OSHA standards in a lot of cases, right? And so, but there's nobody that regulates indoor air because it's individual private property. And so opening your windows is a great way to just kind of let that stuff out and get some fresh air in. Even if you're in a city that has air pollution problems, it's a good, you don't have to leave them open all day, 10 minutes a day, it's fine. So opening your windows, taking off your shoes when you come in the door, really simple. Anybody can do this. We're not just trying to avoid like the dog poop that we may have stepped on, but if we went to the park or if your neighbors are using pesticides on their lawn, you are tracking that into your house. If you have carpets in your house, then those carpets are kind of trapping all those things. So just get into the habit of taking your shoes off. It's really, really simple. And then, you know, from there, we're really looking at making small investments, maybe swapping out your plastic storage containers. You know, we talked about BPA and phthalates. Those two chemicals are often present in our food storage containers, like whether it's leftovers or the squeezable bottle of ketchup that we, you know, just bought. So we want to start really minimizing plastic and especially plastic in the microwave. Like that's just, we just don't do that. Move it into a glass bowl or a plate, ceramic plate and stick it in the microwave if you're going to use that, but don't microwave in plastic. So that's another simple thing that people can do to minimize their exposures to some of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, these obesogenic chemicals. And then from there, you know, it's cleaning up your food when in whatever ways you're able to, it's cleaning up your personal care products, your household cleaners, your cookware. So like, there's just, I mean, I'll tell you, I've been doing this for 12 years, you know, 10 years professionally, 12 years personally, and I'm still always making changes. Like there's no goal here. It's a journey. There's no destination in place. This is just always learning and always making different choices as you are able to. And, you know, if it takes a month, takes a month. If it takes a year, it takes a year. If it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. At some point, we've all been sold a big 
fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Well, I think that's kind of slow and steady message is important yeah. for people to understand. I know that, you know, when I went from I thought I ate a pretty good diet to getting more conscientious about the foods I was eating, and obviously the foods I was cooking and bringing home. I adapted much more easily than my husband did. Now he's fully on board, but there were definitely specific things. I'll give you an example. Um, seed oils was one yeah. of the things that my husband, he had to like read about it, go do the research. And as an engineer, then he was like, okay, checkbox, I can commit to that. One thing in our house, and I'm sure it's probably no different than anyone else's, we have no nonstick pans anymore, but I know that that was really hard for my husband who likes to make omelets and wants to flip the omelet, wants to do all these fancy things when he makes said omelet. Nonstick cookware, I think we've all been conditioned that this is like ease of use, which of course it is, but I think what many people don't realize, and again, this is but one example, the nonstick surface you end up actually ingesting. So as it's breaking down, you're ingesting 
those chemicals into your own body, which is disgusting. It's like, oh, the nonstick surface is worn off. I'm like, oh, it's because we've been eating it. Yeah. And I think also, you know, and those chemicals are concerning. So those are called Mm -hmm. PFAS chemicals. They're in our drinking water. They're major, major environmental pollutant. They're um, referred to as forever chemicals. So though they don't break down, they biopersist in our bodies, they build up. They're hugely, hugely problematic. If people want to learn more about this, they can go to Netflix and watch The Devil We Know documentary. They can go watch Dark Waters, which is a film with Mark Ruffalo that is uh, based on the same story that the Dark Waters documentary explores, which is this DuPont's production of these nonstick chemicals that they've known about for decades, causing health effects, and they suppress that information. And we're polluting drinking water of people living in Parkersburg, West Virginia, that ended up developing all types of serious and fatal illnesses. And so it's a pretty shocking yet common occurrence when it comes. So it's a common representation or good representation of what often happens behind the scenes when we're looking at chemicals and their health effects and the lengths that industries will go to protect their profits over people. So it's a real eye-opener. But those PFAS chemicals, like, yes, you know, I never advocate for nonstick cookware. I think it's a hard no for me. And nonstick cookware is not actually our most significant source of exposure to those chemicals. Those exposures are more likely, even though I still want people to swap them out, right? Because they're not good to utilize, not only for ourselves, but when we're disposing them, we're still contributing to the manufacturing process, to the harming and pollution of, you know, different communities, often communities of color or low-income communities where these factories are seated or sitted, situated. And so it's not just about protecting our health. This is also my argument for organic food. It's not just about me. It is about all the farm workers. It is about all the agricultural workers that are being exposed at really high levels and then bringing those exposures home to their, their children and their families. And so we're getting exposure to PFAS chemicals through food packaging, through you know our pizza boxes, our microwave food containers, any kind of paper that utilizes or that's going to be in contact with a wet, hot, or oily food, they need to make that paper waterproof and that's, or grease proof. So microwave popcorn, big exposure source to PFAS because the entire inside of that bag is lined or coated in this PFAS chemical. We're also being exposed through like our stain proof sprays. So I see folks with the stain proof sprays for their boots to keep their suede nice. Those are typically PFAS chemicals. Even, and I don't have confirmation on this, but I don't see how it wouldn't be PFAS chemicals. Rain-X, which is that, you know, buy it at the hardware store, you wipe it on your windows so that the water beads off. It's great. You know, it's super helpful, but it is a hydrophobic liquid that is very likely just PFAS chemicals. And then we're also being exposed through our drinking water. PFAS is found in uh, firefighting foam. So if you live near an airport, if you live near a military base, military is one of the largest polluters in the world, unfortunately, with various chemicals that they just dump into the groundwater and pollute uh, communities and environments. And so PFAS chemicals are, we're being exposed in lots of different places, but yes, ditch the nonstick. My favorite recommendation, like I'm a cast iron girl, but now I'm a cast iron and carbon steel girl. And so carbon steel has the same properties as cast iron. So it does require the same kind of babying 
that cast iron does, meaning like you can't let it soak, you can't let your food sit in it, you have to, you know, coat it with oil when before you put it away, that kind of stuff. But it's really lightweight, it's very, very thin. So one of the objections with cast iron is it's really heavy. Mm-hmm. So carbon steel is like if you think of a traditional wok, it's really thin. It's thinner than stainless steel, it's really thin and lightweight. Now, carbon steel. And sometimes it takes a while, but you can get your seasoning. It has a smoother finish than most cast iron. Okay. And it also is so lightweight that you can flip it. So you can flip an omelet and you can have a fried egg slide off. I had one this morning on my carbon steel pan and it just slides right out, just like a nonstick pan would. It does require some cooking skill and it does require learning how to season and utilize those pans. So it's not as lazy mm-hmm. as a nonstick is where you don't have to have any skill. You just crack your egg and it's there. And so I think that if people can put in a little bit of effort to learn how to use these pans, how to actually cook properly, you know, don't put cold meat into a hot pan, that kind of stuff. You can achieve fairly nonstick finish with much safer materials. Oh, you've given me certainly something to think about. I want to be mindful of your time. And I'm actually going to absolutely positively bring you back because we could have gone in so many different directions. Yes. When just touching back on the personal care products, I've always kind of sent people to environmental working groups, website to skin deep, to kind of plug in products. When people are looking at, you know, cleaner deodorants, cleaner lotion, like I usually recommend people start with like toothpaste and, you know, I give them a couple things to think about because it's just too overwhelming to change them all. And for full disclosure, it took forever for me to go from antiperspirant deodorant to just deodorant because I was convinced by the lovely, you know, the processed food industry and the big ag companies that sweating was a bad thing. And now I think about it, it makes me laugh. I'm like, your bodies are designed to sweat because it's a way that we detoxify. But I know people oftentimes are very fearful to switch out to a cleaner product because they think they're going to stink and they think that it's not going to be effective. And so what are some of the ways or resources that usually send people to, because that will probably come out of this podcast. People will be asking, what do you use? What do you like to use? What are your resources? So I'm preemptively going to ask that question. before. And it is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so you know, the first resource I'll point to is my own website because mm-hmm. I've curated a bunch of sort of shopping guides for folks of products that I've personally vetted that I think are good. And so, and there's like 10 categories, skincare, beauty care, makeup, hair care, oral care, feminine care, like cookware, all the stuff. So that's a shortcut where people can go. Um, there's also, at least when it comes to personal care products, there's a couple of really great stores. I link them on my skincare and beauty care pages on my site, um, stores like the Detox Market, like Credo Beauty, because what these companies have done is essentially created a marketplace where they have vetted you know, dozens of brands that have stepped into this sort of clean beauty space. And I'm using air quotes there because it's a really unregulated phrase or concept. And so there's lots of different interpretations and there's a lot of what's called clean washing or green washing that happens where companies are like, no, our products are clean. And then like, but according to who? And so there's a lot of of disingenuous marketing that's happening out there, which is why I like companies like the detox market or Credo Beauty or Folane is another one because they're vetting these products and saying like, these are our standards. And these are the chemicals that we don't want to see in the products that we sell. They're not always a hundred percent perfect, but I, as I mentioned earlier, like I'm not 
picky about perfection. I'm not, I just want people to be doing better, making better choices. And so those stores are a great resource. They've got, you know, all of the personal care products for men and women that you would need. And that's really where I tend to point people. I don't actually tend to point people to the environmental working groups databases, because I think most people truly find them to be overwhelming. And while you might find products there, you won't find those products in a store, right? So like, then you have to go through all of these hoops to jump through to be like, well, I found a product that's great. And like, but now I have to figure out where to buy it. And Mm -hmm. maybe they don't sell direct. And well, they're not at my local co-op or my local health food store. So like, now I'm back to square one. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think, you know, and they've kind of worked their way out because they've got the EWG verified. That's sort of the same concept as like detox market. So there are resources out there. I think those are, you know, the ones that I mentioned, people can hop over to my website if they just want the shortcut, like here's the basics that every, that I think, you know, people need, but I don't want people to feel overwhelmed because when people are overwhelmed, they they don't do anything, Mm -hmm. right. They're just, they're kind of frozen in action. And, you know, even if the action is small, like I said, if it's ditching the scented products in your home, if it's opening your windows, you know, just start there. And then if you're at the place where your deodorant or antiperspirant runs out and you need to buy a new one, then you can switch to a better product. You don't have to go and throw out the products that you have, you know, that's, that's money that you spent. You can utilize them. If you feel like throwing them out, great, but otherwise just use them up. And then when you're ready to replace them, you can go to one of those resources and say, let me try this deodorant or let me try that line of shampoo, you know, see how they do. And keep in mind, and I think this is a challenge for a lot of people, especially when it comes to deodorants and hair care specifically, is like everyone's body chemistry is different. So like not every product is going to work the same for every person. Um, And the same thing with hair, everybody's hair is different. Is it oily? Is it dry? Is it textured? Is it straight? Like, what's the climate that you live in. And so the one shampoo product isn't going to work for anybody. And I have tried some bad shampoos, like real bad shampoos. Companies send me products all the time to try. And I'm like, sure, great. And there's, you know, been a handful where I'm like, yeah, I can't, I'm sorry. (laughs) It just didn't work for me and it might work for other people, but it just, it was a no for me. So like there is an experimentation process when you're looking to swap out particularly personal care products until you find the one that works for you. So I just, I think prefacing that for people going in, I don't want them to try one product and be like, this doesn't work. Yeah. And I think the emphasis on bioindividuality, acknowledging that we all are very unique individuals. I can tell you that I have, despite having very fine hair, I have a lot of it. And on the East coast where the humidity is out of control right now, this time of the year, I tell people all the time, I'm like, all bets are off in the summer. I'm more often than not, my hair is in a ponytail and it's the only way it can be controlled because otherwise it's like the size of New Jersey. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know that you mentioned your website, but I would love for you to share with listeners how to connect with you. You have a great Instagram account. That's actually where we initially got connected. Let listeners know how to connect with you. Obviously, I want to bring you back. There are so many rabbit holes we could have gone down, including just the water issue alone. I was telling my husband the last couple of weeks, I've been doing your water course. And I was telling me, I said, now I'm completely paranoid. It's like, we're moving to a new city and I'm like, we have to get our water tested. And he was like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. Do you know how, I mean, the number of husbands that hate me. No, no, I don't think, you know what I, what I would say to you is so I'm married to an engineer 
who is someone who is a very reasonable person, but sometimes it's like moving a mountain, but the seed oil thing, as an example, yeah. it took him a long time, but now he's hundred percent on board. And like, he tells me when I go to the store and try to find a chip, cause I have teenage boys yeah. and I'm a realist. I mean, yeah. they're not going to not eat a chip. I'd rather they eat a cleaner chip yeah. and how many, how few products don't have seed oils in them, whether it's a cookie, a cracker, a salad dressing, yeah. he now reads those labels. So once he's on board, he's hundred percent on board. So I don't think it's so much that husbands get kerfuffled. I think it takes them a little longer to come around. Yeah, like I think I, maybe the women were like, oh my gosh, sound the alarms. We need to be you know, aware of this. There's some danger amongst us. We need to be aware. And then the men kind of go, you know, I need a little more time to kind of like process this. Yeah. I so. have a good friend who was doing a home renovation and she was like calling me from Home Depot and I could just hear her <laughs> husband grumbling in the background. And I was like, I'm sorry, Pat. I'm just, she asked, I can't I, not answer the question. Do with this information what you will. But yeah, so people can jump over to Instagram and they can find me there at environmental toxins nerd. There's tons of information and resources there. You know, I work primarily with health professionals. So my content is, you know, mostly geared towards them, but you don't have to be a health professional to benefit from um, what you learn. And then, you know, my hope also is just that for students of mine, like you, who do take in this information that you then become the resource for folks who are looking for, you know, guidance and support mm -hmm. on these topics. So yeah, either my Instagram people can come find me there or just at my website, which is lauraadler.com. Well, thank you again for your time. And as I mentioned earlier, I will definitely be having you back. There's so yeah, many different good. topics we could have dove down. And I think this is really important information. I think, you know, for so many people, this might be the third time they've heard it, the 10th time they've heard it, but to have everything organized in such a way that makes it accessible and makes it non-frightening, because that's one of the things that I think is critically important is that, you know, if you have a platform, a website, a podcast, if you can share good information, educate and inspire people to make, you know, positive life changes, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.